This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz and you are my People of the Book. And today I'm thrilled to be with my guest, Margie Orford. Welcome to the show, Margie. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I am very excited because obviously, Margie, you do have a South African connection. I have such a South African connection. <laughs> yes. Made, made by South Africa. Made in SA. Well, not made in SA, but made by SA. So, um, you were, you're internationally acclaimed. I mean, but, but we're going to be talking about your latest book, which is called The Eye of the Beholder. But just to give a little bit of background on you and your, your title of Queen of South African Crime Thriller Writers, we'll get to that. But you're an award-winning journalist. You write for papers in the UK, South Africa, and you write regularly about crime, gender violence, politics, freedom of expression, and you've also written children's books and several works of non-fiction on subjects ranging from climate change to rural development. So basically you write about everything that honestly everything just everything just, in the every, world catches my attention everything <laughs> but you were born in london and as we said to south african parents you grew up in namibia and south africa and you went to uct university of cape town i was at the university of cape town in the what feels like the Pearstone age now in the 1980s <laughs> yes Yes, the 80s, but the 80s had the best music, so. I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And then you were awarded a Fulbright scholarship in 1999. 1999, I went to New York on my Fulbright. I'd been living in Namibia. I had three tiny children and went with them to New York City. Wow. My mom and dad looked after them for a semester so I could sort of settle. And, yeah, then I went off to New York. And in many ways, that trip shaped how I understood things and what I came to write about. I did a lot of work on Holocaust studies at the time and trauma theory, and it gave me a kind of understanding of how you tell narratives from the point of view of perpetrator and of victim. We were talking about that before the interview started. It also gave me a kind of distance to from South Africa that I needed to understand the sort of tectonics of what had happened and the long duration of suffering and how to find the stories that brought that to life. Okay. And then you actually, you also have a master's in comparative literature. That's what I was doing in New York. Yes. <laughs> yes. With my children, yes, tiny children, children under the desk. But you now live in London. You're an honorary fellow of St. Hughes College um, at Oxford. You are the president emerita of, is it PE in South? Penn Pen, Pen, Pen South, South Africa. Africa. Yeah, Pen, Pen South Africa. Africa. And you were also on the board of Penn International. And when you lived in South Africa, you were also a patron of rape crisis. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a, a, a long and quite an esteemed CV that you, you <laughs> hold. I mean, I'm sure there's so much more than this. I mean, we could be here all day discussing this. Yeah. But, the, but your, your books and your, your clear heart novels, which is, is what you are so well known for, which earned you that title of Queen of South African crime writing crime thriller writers you write predominantly you write about the the female experience and about crimes against women and and the trauma that they suffer and that is predominantly the theme of your new book but firstly I have to ask you why was this so long in the making it's been almost 10 years it was a very long time well the, the Claire Hart books 
which are actually being republished and reissued by Jonathan Ball in November. So if people want to get them again, they will be available. Um, I looked then, and when I came back to South Africa, I was very fascinated by the miraculous transition of 1994, the sort of super ego of the Constitution, um, one of the best sort of human rights-founded foundation uh, constitutions in the world, and why you had this undertow of unbelievable violence, which was particularly directed at the vulnerable women and children, um, and why this society that we live in and that we love had turned on itself in this way. So the Claire Hart books were really an investigation of that. Claire Hart herself is an investigative journalist, as I was, and she just was looking and trying to work it out and telling the story. I always think you tell a story of a place much the best if you go through one person, one victim, see all the fallout in her family. I'm very interested in power and I'm very interested in what people do with power, why they will be violent. I've actually written books about men in a way. These books describe women who are subjected to violence, how it shapes them, but in a way it's trying to understand why men do these things, some men. And the long gap, I guess I just burnt out. I was exhausted. I was um it's traumatic to look at things so up close and uh, things. So in 2015, I had these three fellowships. I went to UK, one in Scotland, one in Italy. And I had started writing a sixth Claire Hart, which was an investigation into the production of pornographic images of children. And I just felt I was replicating this gaze that was the same sort of criminal gaze. And I thought, I want to tell the story. And it took me such a long time to find a form which I could write about what it means to be turned into an object, what it means to be a thing. Writers are quite simple. I'm quite simple. So I, it really fascinated me. And it took me a long time. It was a difficult novel to sell. Then Me Too happened. And The Eye of the Beholder suddenly was a very easy novel to sell. I think the the kind of extremity of it in some ways and the, and the truthfulness of it, of what it means, was clarified for people after, especially after the Me Too movement. So some of the delay was me having a rest and trying to find a new form. Um, another was maybe the world caught up. Right. And... The themes, so those themes have carried forward into this book, The Eye of the Beholder, and you haven't strayed from these tough issues and violence against women and children, but you've taken the themes and you have used them with your three main characters. And your three characters, there's Cora, there's her daughter Freya, and there is a young woman by the name of angel and we are going to get into a lot of information a lot of detail about what these three women what links them what connects them and the trauma that that connects them actually and we're going going to get into that throughout the show i love it when you read to me this is people of the book with janice Liebowitz. You're listening to People of the Book, and today I'm interviewing Margie Orford about her new book, The Eye of the Beholder. 
so Margie, let's, I mean, obviously no spoilers. We don't, so never difficult. do it. it is I know, difficult. it's sort of not talking about a spoiler because it's such a gripping book. It, so, it is I'm gripping. It's, myself it's, when I was it's tense. It's dark. Um, so, I mean, um, someone who listens to me often will know that dark thrillers are predominantly what I read, but you know, totally opposite from from me, actually, because I'm not really a dark uh, kind of person. But I'm fascinated. They fascinate me. Well, there's something about a dark thrill. I'm not such a dark person either, although my children might beg to differ. Oh, mine as well. You know, there's something about a thriller that works, I think, a little bit like Perseus's mirror. Perseus is the one who slayed the poor Medusa. The mirror, the novel, these dark, well, this novel, I think, works as a, a mirror in which you can look at something that if you looked at it directly, silences you or kills you. It's too kind of traumatic or too difficult. But the thriller, these I think very dark thrillers, what they give you is a form in which they're held by the author. So you can look at these things trusting that you will be taken through all the events and that in the end you'll have this feeling of kind of triumph and a kind of solution in a way, a kind of way through. So that's how I think of my work as Well, Cora, who is your main character, she is a painter. And what you've done with her is she lives she's living in Scotland and she's an artist and she tries to turn trauma into art. And she's had a traumatic, she has traumatic memories of a childhood in South Africa. There's a lot of illusion in the book, that things that are alluded to that are not, and I love that. I love when authors do that because it means that you trust your reader. You trust that your reader is intelligent enough to figure out what has happened, what is going on, and to figure out what you are saying and what this character has been through. And I love that because there's a lot of what is alluded to in Cora's past, what has happened. She grows up on a farm, um, on her family farm called Eden. By the way, my daughter's name is Eden, so I love that. (laughs) And volatile. And Eden is a volatile place. It's uh, it's full of, of, of dark and light and and she grows up on this farm and, and she admits to herself she was a wild child. I mean, she grows up wild on this farm and she grows up with her friend David and all of a sudden her friend David is ripped away from her and she's not actually sure why. We realize why and this is what, what I'm talking about when I talk about illusion and, and things that are alluded to, but she just expresses it in pure anger. There, there's just anger as to to why there is the separation and that's that's one of her first traumas actually yeah she so Cora Berger Cora Berger I was thinking for for your readers who are interested in art as well a, a person who influenced me a lot in my thinking about it was John Berger's ways of seeing and I Cora grows up here in South Africa I suppose she's about 50-ish she's now working in the UK and her main driver is I suppose a woman who falls in love with a man who has a terrible secret so it's it's, it's a sort of the nature of love so she has a kind of fracture in her which stems from her childhood so with with Cora I was thinking um, I don't know how to write an English childhood I can't imagine them really I can see them but I can't feel them like I know a South African one what is a person who's shaped by experiences of early violence, of early loss and various things. So she carries that wound with her. She packs it up and leaves and 
goes to London when she's young, when she's 22 or something, and works with that all her life, but she's put it aside. She's put it aside from her consciousness, which makes her a very complex, very driven character. But what she does is the art that she makes is always in a way trying to close over that rift and to try and understand it, which she she gets to finally in this book, but she can't figure it out. Her daughter, her lovely daughter, Freya, who grows up in a much gentler place, lives alongside that. That was interesting to me as well, the sort of idea of generational traumas yes. and how this girl, Freya, who adores her mother and is kind of very attached to a mother who's both absent and present, which I think someone who has unresolved trauma is, you, you, there's part of you which is just not there. And this child, this girl, tries to understand her mum, tries to make it. So it's a, it's a kind of wound that she doesn't even really know she has. So I actually, I actually have a note here that the Freya is – she's so well aware of of the trauma that her mother experiences has experienced. She doesn't know what it was, but she, she just, she's struggling. She's, she, she knows that her mother experienced some trauma, but she herself is struggling to understand these demons that have pursued her mother seemingly for most of her life. And um, she, it suggested to her that she, takes a look at her mother's art from when she first started to produce art because you've inserted into this an exhibition that Cora has um, produced that she's exhibiting. It's called Forbidden Fruit, and it's caused an absolute media frenzy. She's being accused of possibly herself and being involved in some sort of child and pornography. Again, a lot is alluded to. And it took me a while. It takes a while for that to come out. Like, but what is this forbidden fruit um, exhibition? You know, what what do you mean when you keep saying they're after her and that it's been um, received so negatively? And and Freya, even Freya, has been approached by by the media, by the police. Even there's a police investigation into this, and she's questioned as to why her mother has produced these images. And um, so Freya is drawn into this, and as as we as you said, there is this this transgenerational trauma, and she needs to try and understand this. Mm, she to yes. So part of, I was very interested with both the girls, Angel Lamar, who's not a daughter, but she's the same age as Freya. So the mother daughter relationship fascinates me, and I think it's sort of under attended to in literature. I have three daughters, so I suppose that's a bit of a giveaway <laughs> but um and a mother with freya she the, the art that cora produces i was very interested in so the thing is all about images and which are taboo and which are not taboo so she is exploring a sort of dramatic experience of her own around adolescence which she is kind of projected also onto her daughter and i was interested in this idea of like if you make the images yourself are those then taboo compared to sort of pornographic image, for instance? Um, I had much in mind the book Lolita by Nabokov. You know, that was present in my thinking all the all the time about what those characters are, what an adolescent girl, being an ex-adolescent myself. <laughs> and that realization, I think, that any woman will recognize, but you suddenly feel for the first time a male gaze, what it's to be looked at as a sexual being and you it's 
happens way too young for most girls and you're suddenly shocked. You're just for yourself. And then suddenly there's this look on you, which makes you see yourself from the outside. And that to me is one of the splits. It's like a psychosexual split that affects most women, I think. Also in a gaze, which is very patriarchal and misogynist and all of that. But how to tell that story, that was the complicated thing. How to navigate those things and the closeness between mother and daughter. I mean, Freya to me is very interesting how she emerged because she, in the writing, grew more and more as a character. And she always was sitting somewhere near her mother. It's like she's, instead of the mother being hypervigilant of the child, the child's hypervigilant of her mother, always keeping an eye on her, always waiting for her to come back, watching her, trying to protect her in a way. And I think our daughters do that sometimes. They end up doing that for their mothers. So, yeah, So, but with the artwork, it's like how you can't look directly at traumatic experiences, especially traumatic sexual experiences. It always is in representation, if it, even if it's language with your therapist or trying to put it into a form which approximates who you were before the thing happened and who you are now afterwards. So the, the use of art, and I've used it in other books as well, it's, it's a sort of instinctive thing because we can only approximate what happened. You can't reproduce Absolutely. It. But it is also, I just want to say, there's something to me which is about creativity, about women's creativity, which speaks of resilience. It's a determination to make beauty out of something that was chaotic and hideous. And to me, that was the, the resonating theme throughout the book, that all these women, these three women, are all on their own path um, of self-discovery. And they are, they've encountered betrayal, disappointment along the way, but they are determined not to be victims. They are absolutely, they, they are showing the world that they are coming through, they're thriving, and they are... Um, they're not going to allow actions and behaviors of others, specifically men. They're not going to allow that to define who they are. I have to just say this book, all the women who have read it have loved it and all the men who have read it have been scared of it, which I take I can, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can understand that. Yeah. that. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Well, they survive with them. And you ask yourself, how does, how does a person survive? How do you survive a gaze that looks at you and just sees you as a thing? like a table or a chair. So, you know, there's there's how you keep looking at yourself somehow, not in terms of vanity, but a determination that you are human. You know, there's been a long debate in religion, all sorts of religions about women, if we even have souls. So it kind of a way situating starting out in Eden, like how do women fit in a world that's uncertain about them? You know, Christianity was very uncertain about it. The Greeks were not sure. Aristotle had a long debate about whether women actually had souls or not. So it's an old cultural debate. But art itself, making things, is a saying, I'm a person, I'm a human being, right. take me into account. And it's also a form of witnessing and record. You know, the music I was here. And we're going, going to get into that throughout the show. I love it when you this is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Okay, so we've spoken about Cora and Freya and the mother-daughter relationship and trauma and transgenerational trauma. Let's talk about Angel. So Angel is living in this, um, this very snowy and desolate Canadian landscape, which 
to some might seem odd for a young woman to isolate herself like that. And she's living there and she seems to be running away from her past. And she she cares for and she tracks wolves um, in the area. And she has set up a, a viewing um, cabin. It's on the grounds of this art dealer. And his name is um, Yves Fournier. Excuse my pronunciation. <laughs> I don't um, know how to say it either. Yes, <laughs> will do. And all of a sudden, this this man disappears, mm-hmm. and she, the reader might wonder why is she so hell bent on finding him? You know, it seems to be a lot more than just caring about. Well, where is he? Because my cabin is somewhere on his grounds, and she's hell bent on finding him. And then you wonder, well, how does her life intersect with his life, with Cora, with Freya? And this is where the art of the author comes into being because you connect the dots so beautifully. And chill, it's chilling. You do it chillingly as well. Um, and it's not only because of the, the snowy, cold backdrop. It's the story it's confrontational and it's it's very uncomfortable uh, it blurs lines and you, you really I mean, you explore a lot of real life fears especially with for, for men as you've said and and who who is angel tell me about angel angel is she came into my mind many years ago actually long before i wrote this book this character just appeared and i saw her she's sort of very kind of self-contained and she's a figure of vengeance. And one of the things that interest, has always interested me is people who have been subjected to violence. And this I actually learned from working with perpetrators. I worked in a prison in, Fran- a prison in France for over a year doing creative writing workshop. I also worked with a group of 15 men there. And what really fascinated me about these men, also published by Jonathan Ball, actually, their, their writing was what had happened, what happens to people who early on in their lives are subject to intolerable violence. Where does this all go? Where does the questing, lively capacity of a human being go? So Angel has been subjected to, her her mother is killed, her mother dies, and this lost mother haunts her through the whole book. She's never sure about what her mother knew about what happened to her with her stepfather. That's not too much of a spoiler, but who, why she left her, this sort of abandonment. And so Angel is on a mission. I can say it simply. Her mission is basically to take out every single man who ever looked at her on the internet. And the kernel, I suppose, of that character came from an investigative story I did many years ago in Cape Town, which was looking at a man who'd set himself up as a photographer in Cape Town. And then he duped and drugged the I interviewed five young women, really young. I think I think Marie Claire published this story. And they, so this was in the early 2000s, like, you know, when, when revenge porn and, and the, this sort of stuff that we're all so familiar with now that, that we've forgotten to be horrified was absolutely new. And one of the girls said to me, it never stops. I saw some of the footage of what had been done to her and it was horrifying. She said to me, this crime never stops. She says, even when I'm asleep, it's being, someone is watching somewhere. And it stayed with me. This, so this is like where Angel comes from. What happens if you have a crime that never ends? It's not possible 
to recover. It's not how do you go on? Because that's the time I was working for rape well, birth rape crisis. And one of the things, you know, the sort of cliches, cliche because it's true, I think, for most people with therapy is that if you do counseling, if you talk about it, there is a point in which this traumatic event, which stays in the present in an uncanny way, to reference Dr. Freud, moves into the past. And then you can get some distance to it, like Cora's tried to do. You can create some sort of thing and go on with your life. But what happens if you, a crime has been done to you, which just goes on and never ends? And so this that was that's Angel's origin, a person who's a victim of a crime that never, ever comes to the, an end. So her desire for revenge will never come to an end. The, the, there can't be any justice, you know what I mean, the, because this crime is repeated, repeated, repeated. So that, I think that was the unsteady ground at the center, unsteady in the best way, because it's made it so complicated to write. And her such a fascinating character with a person who's cut off everything in her that's loving and resilient and creative. But you see with the wolves and her capacity with nature, there's some little vignettes where you see her connecting with a little child where you yeah. can see what was distorted in her. And of course, she's now on this man she's been watching, along with the wolves, disappears. Where has he gone? She, she's, I was interested as well in the book, where and how do women collude with the violence that men do? Because it happens often in all sorts of complicated ways. So that's what she is doing. She's the kind of pulse of that. And of course, she spent a lifetime looking for a lost mother. So in a way, it's these two daughter figures, the sort of dark and the light daughters. And Cora is a kind of mother figure. The and it's a hunt. And the interesting thing is that, that you're saying it's a crime that never ends. And on the flip side of that coin is these men who think the opposite. They think they've they committed no crime. They think there's no crime. Yes. These are pictures yes. and it's not yes. doing any harm. Yeah. And and each one is and, a crime yes, scene. And each one is a crime. Yeah, I mean, there's something really simple. It's not complicated for me, the origin. You know, when I was doing the Claire Hart stuff, I remember a cop who helped me a lot with sort of how the gangs worked and stuff. He he told me that, you know, I remember it was just a passing thing that these gangsters were sort of film, um, you know, to, I was looking at things around tick and methamphetamines and stuff. He said they'll film these girls and then, use that as a way of blackmailing them and as an easy way of making a profit. And it's so simple. And yet it takes a person's whole life from there. Yes. It's like, it's, you know, that sort of idea that your soul is stolen. So in a way, Angel, in her looking for these men who've looked at her, in some sort of atavistic way, she's trying to get herself back, get her soul right. back. So the interesting thing about this book and I always say what what draws me to to certain thrillers and to certain whodunits and psychological thrillers particularly is that often the main characters are completely unlikable. And I did find in this book that Cora and Angel, they don't really endear themselves to the reader. They're, they're, they're not warm characters. And it makes the book so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I like Cora. I, I found, uh, for me, I, I didn't, she's not someone I warmed to, neither is Angel. 
it it makes the book better. But I find that with a lot of of psychological thrillers and a lot of of similar books, you want to know. And but the the only difference with this was you wanted them you wanted them to to come out on top. You want you you knew that you knew what their their goal was. You knew they didn't want to be victims. They didn't deserve to be victims. And you knew that that these women they they had so much to prove. Well, I was thinking one of the I don't think one can decide not to be a victim. I think that what Cora does it what neither of them do, which was my question, I suppose, is to explore is what happens when women stop being nice? Because so much of the trouble that we get into is because we were nice in situations where we felt uncomfortable. We were nice when we were afraid to be hundred percent true yeah and so you you don't do you don't shout early enough when you know somebody is dangerous because we're so conditioned into being polite into not making a fuss into not humiliating a man part of that is good but so what happens when you stop being nice and the angel and cora kind of twinned in a way so so angel you know, just as a, in a, as a literary feeling, I thought, what happens when, when a girl decides to wreak revenge rather than fold in and collapse in on herself and self-harm? What happens? So it's, Angel does a bit of self-harming and then she stops doing it. What happens? You said Cora had this pure rage. Some of her rage is directed into her heart. But what happens when we stop being nice, when we stop turning the wounds, making wounds our own, cutting ourselves, so to speak. And it was very interesting because both of them are, have great compassion in moments. So, so Cora is, loves her daughter and is highly protective. You see with Angel, who's not nice, she doesn't give a flying you-know-what for, for what people think of her because at key moments on her life she wasn't thought of. And I was interested in what women can do when they stop being nice. Yes. And you also have to not be nice to make good art. You have to be fierce. You know, you have to not care what people think in a very profound and yes. deep way um, to to make something that's true, I think. Yes, when you put yourself out there, you you actually need to stop caring about the opinions of others. Well, the opinions of men. It's the opinions of it's mm. the opinions of people in power and people who've done harm. Because, I mean, I, as I was saying about that it was difficult to sell the book before Me Too. One of the things that has protected people like Harvey Weinstein, people like Prince Andrew and various things, is that there was this kind of omerta, kind of silence, a fear of embarrassing them. Women were afraid to humiliate them. They weren't believed. So you, they were conditioned into a kind of politeness, and it will kill you in the end. Mm-hmm. More polite. You are listening to People of the Book, and I'm talking to my guest, Margie Orford. We've been chatting about her book, The Eye of the Beholder, and all I can say to you is go and get it. It's an outstanding book. It will keep you on the edge of your seat. It is chilling. It's riveting, gripping, and powerful. So I suggest wherever you buy books, get out there and get your copy. Margie, it's been such a pleasure having you as my guest. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And thank your um, listeners for listening to us. <laughs> thank
Thank you so much. It's been great. And to you, my people of the book, like I always tell you, take care of yourself, take care of each other, do what you love and read a book.